Welcome back to Keeping Tabs. Today, I want to thank our sponsor, 32 Below, for Froyo and more. Brand new business opening in the Coeur d'Alene area in August. So make sure you follow them on all their social media to keep up to date on what's happening and their opening date. Now let's jump into this episode. It is an amazing episode with my dear friend, Adam. We're going to talk about Minneapolis and chop in the heart of Seattle and what he experienced documenting all the things happening. So sit back and enjoy. Okay, I have Adam with me today, and I am so excited. We're going to talk about something, um, current events, something that, you know, we're all reading on the news, uh, watching, seeing what's going on. I got a phone call from him um, beginning of June that says, hey, I'm in Minneapolis during the mass riots just started. This guy's in the heart of it, taking video, taking pictures. Um, and then just a little while ago was in the heart of CHOP, it's called, in Seattle. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for joining me again. Thanks for having me. You're really nice because that phone call wasn't, hey, I'm in. It was like, Tabitha, I'm in a war zone. I got all the pictures. I got. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I'm going to start that over. So he starts yelling at me and I'm like, oh my gosh, be safe. What's going on? Are you okay? What do you need from me? What do you need? And so that's how that, you're right. That was a passionate one. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm driving. I got two hours. Yeah, he goes down there to to take photos at a wedding and he ends up in war zone. So (laughs) first, just tell us about a little bit about when you were in Minneapolis and like when everything started. Yeah, that was really cool. I was uh, there for a destination wedding that was in northern Minnesota, a place called Cross Lake. And so I was like, well, it's on Saturday. I was like, I should get there a day before because I don't know anything about the area. And then last minute, thankfully, and that was like, I'll get there on Friday. Last minute, I'm like, well, you know, what if something goes wrong with the flight or something? I was like, I'll get there two days before. And so I got to Minneapolis. I got my rental car. I flew all day long. So I was in, in the air all day long. I had no clue what was that was happening there, honestly. Mm-hmm. Got my rental car. It was like 10 o'clock at night. Got back to my hotel. Just went to sleep. Had no idea. Well, that was the night when everything burned down and everything happened. I still didn't know when I woke up in the morning. I opened up the blinds to literally just like smoke on the horizon, sirens, ambulances, all the stuff. And I was like, that's a little wild. I don't know. Like, is that COVID stuff or whatever? They're like dropping concrete barriers because I was at the Mall of America and stuff like that. Uh, So I ran down to the front desk and I was like, what's going on? They're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, they're like, the whole city burned down last night. I was like, how do I get there? They're like, you're not going. I was like, I'm going. How do I get there? And they're like, okay, take this road. So I grabbed my camera and I just went down and just hopped right in the middle of uh, the third precinct, which is where the police station where Officer Chauvin was from. And so that's the epicenter of the whole thing. Then they burned down the precinct that night. All the police fled, got their cars, everything out of there was a massive moment. And then they just started burning down that whole city that night. So when I was there, it's like 9, 10 in the morning, 9.30 in the morning. Buildings were still on fire. Buildings were still smoldering. Firefighters couldn't keep up with anything. Like they're trying mm-hmm. to put out a building here, but this building's on fire. So I'm like in a family uh, dollar store that's still burning and smoldering. There's no one, no police, no firefighters. Uh, and I got this, there's this African-American guy walking. I was like, dude, he's standing there and let me get this cool picture. He's like, yeah. And 
he's like, I'm a rapper. And I'm like, not now. And he's like, ah. And so I'm, he's standing there. And I was like, just go in there and like rap, actually. Like, tell, give me a freestyle. So he's rapping. He's like burning down building. And then firefighters ran by and they said, you don't want to be breathing that stuff in. And I was like, oh, shit. And so then we left. And so I just kept going. But, you know, that was like the chaotic side. And then I'm getting to these like gas stations that were looted and destroyed. And these are family owned businesses. And so I'm with the owners when they're literally mm -hmm. taking down the wood to see the collateral damage or like going through the broken windows and stuff and very, very emotional. And they, uh, the one, they had been there for like 45 hours straight and wow. finally police came in that night and said, you have to go home. You can't be here. And so it was very heart wrenching because, you know, they're a family business, they're a local business, they're a community business. Their security guard is black himself, African-American guy. It's like, it's not a white owned business. They were Hispanic. So it's not like a white owned business that they're like trying to make a point against. So that was sad, but immediately you had hundreds of volunteers out just cleaning. And when I was there, when they were taking down the wood and everything, like there's already probably 20 people minimum saying we're here. We got mops, we got brooms. How can we help? We'll re rebuild and, you know, we're here. So, and that was all races. You had black, Mexican, white, everyone, all ages. So that, I mean, that was a beautiful part of it too, but it was so fast moving because like the farther you got to the police station, then you got to the main bridge. Now the main bridge is where the national guard had just installed their perimeter. And so you had national guard with all their guns, with their perimeter. And then you had beautiful scenes of, uh, lots of the protesters peacefully, but passionately, it wasn't all quiet, but asking the National Guard, you know, put your, put your guns down. Like, you're going to be mad that we're peacefully upset that someone was murdered here. Like, you're going to come against arms and you're 18, you're 19, you're a kid, you're one of us. Put your guns down. And very powerful emotional moments of these just reminded me of the Vietnam protests, you know, and the pictures you mm. see where people are, uh, the hippies are putting flowers in the rifles of the National Guard that are protecting those protests. And uh, there's one kid that was younger, probably 21, 22, and he was asking them if uh, he can pray with them. And some of them put their guns to their side and stopped and prayed with them and put their heads down. So every possible thing was just incredible. And then day after day, then every day from there, people just came closer together. And uh, I mean, some of these buildings, you didn't even know what it was. And the one I figured out was a Wendy's only because I found the drive-through mm -hmm. like sign on the outside. But then, you know, people are cleaning and scrubbing and it's like a hundred degrees easily. So like terrible work, scrubbing graffiti off walls, like terrible, just tedious, monotonous, but everyone's there, thousands of people just to rebuild the city. So you had everything. It was awesome. Yeah. And I think that's a part that we don't see on the news or we don't, you know, and that's the great thing that you were doing down there is you're taking these phenomenal photos and videos of what's really happening. Um, there's some really great things and people coming together. And I mean, anybody listening, watching, make sure you go to his social media and go see all of these amazing videos and photos that you and your team have put together. You have a friend that has helped you with a lot of the videos as well. And they're just, I mean, I, d I saw a whole different side. You see everything happening on all the news stations and you see, oh my gosh, there's actually beautiful things happening from this. Yeah. And that's all on the website, hellofromastranger.com. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, two things are weird about that. One, I've never done video in my life. I have no idea how to do video. I'm a photographer. I'm, I'm crap at video. So I literally, these situ situations are so powerful. They needed more context in a photograph. And they were too emotional. I'm kind of introverted. So too emotional for me to stop and get the write down the stories and quotations. Right. 
it was too fast. So I'm learning video on the spot, literally like handheld, no microphone, no stabilizer. I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, but I'm just like putting a camera in people's face. I'm like, tell me, you know, give this. Um, and also like, I'm not political in any possible way. I hate things that are divisive. Um, I wanted to be there without an agenda, just, but what struck me the most is when I would go and I was like living on the front lines within the situations. These are long 16, 18 hour days with every person that I could get to talk to me. And then I'd go back to my room and I'd see the news and I'd be like, that's not even close to what's happening. And like, mm -hmm. I don't care if that's what I was seeing, that's what I would show up. Honestly, I had zero bias in this, but it's just not even close to what I was seeing. So then I felt this strong calling to be like, okay, you need to be somewhat of a light to just show, because if the only narrative that gets out there is that narrative, which was false, but also sensationalized, um, even having one alternative narrative to show a different side, that's all also minimally biased. There's still going to be some bias accidentally, but minimally, it's like it kind of counteracts a little bit of all the negative narratives getting out there, which sells media and sells news, but it's not the truth. And so I was there to tell the truth. And if I saw chaos, destruction, looting, violence, that's what I would have shown. But it's just not what I saw. And it just wasn't the truth. So is there someone that you met while you're in Minneapolis that like really, I don't know, changed you or like really impacted you? Um, I know that you met a lot of people and you got to have some really cool conversations and portray their stories. Is there someone out there that you were just like, this is, you know, moving? Yeah, that's a question. Uh, everybody, and, and like <laughs> as a multitude of a group itself, because I'm from St. Louis, huge racial divide in St. Louis. I grew up in that. I know that very, very well. You know, 60% African-American. Uh, you had white flight in the 50s. You have this huge racial divide where all those that could afford in the 50s to move to the suburbs, move to the suburbs, and all those that couldn't had to stay in the city. We, St. Louis has always been top five murder capitals of the country. You have a lot of crime that came from that. So I know that situation, but I'm not involved in the political side of it. I just love humanity and stories and I love like mm -hmm. personal sides. I think that's essential right now to, for people just to listen because we don't need to be saying, no, you need to think this or this is right or wrong. It's like, just listen. People have incredible stories to tell you and you don't have to agree with them, but at least give them the space to tell their story and then make a more informed decision of what you believe. So each and every day I was, I was trusted more than I ever thought I would. And just for unbelievable reasons, like just, you know, they saw that I was there every day. They saw that I was in every situation, but I wasn't just with the protesters. I was with the police also. I was with the National Guard also. I would annoy the crap out of the police and they'd sit in a minivan. I'd go up and I'd just start talking about asking for a cookie. This one guy had a bag of cookies. I was like, give me a cookie and let's talk. We all just talked for 45 minutes. And so trying to get every possible story out. And that my favorite moment that was, I don't know, it's just interesting to me, I guess is like, I'm sitting in the room, I had to take a break. And it was like Tuesday of that week. And I'm watching on TV, uh, this incredible speech of Steven Jackson and some of the other leaders from Minneapolis. And I'm watching and I had no clue who Steven Jackson was zero, no idea. And I'm terrible at sports too. But I'm watching the speech. And I'm just like, this is unbelievable. This is strong, passionate, like clear, concise, not messy, emotional, not aggressive, like just like shook me to my core, like hair standing up listening. Mm -hmm. And I was like, in a society right now where the world kind of feels 
kind of asleep a lot of times where people struggle with saying their true voice because they worry about how it separates them from people. You know, they're not as popular for doing that. This is people with a voice saying, I don't care if you love me or hate me, this is the truth. And I saw that and I was like, I want to meet that guy. I didn't have a clue who he was. I, I thought he was one of the leaders. And the funny, well, and so I saw and I found out later it was Stephen Jackson. And so I wanted to meet him. Well, when I was in the, my room and the four officers got charged and I would go down to the main protests were at 38th in Chicago, which is where George Floyd was killed. And every day I'd look for this guy. I don't know who he was. I just wanted to meet him. And I saw that all four officers were charged. I knew that was a big moment. And I was in my room watching that and I ran back and there he was. And so I just barged my way to the front of the crowd and I was like, I need to talk with you. I need that, like your speech, unbelievable. And I pulled him aside and we ended up having just a beautiful conversation. Gave me all the time in the world. I recorded him getting like, I want that passion on this. And it's funny to give an idea of how I had no clue who he was. I asked his assistant, I said, who is that guy? I love that story. And she looks at me and she goes, Milton. And she's just messing with me. She's trolling me because she's like, that's Steven Jackson. I swear to God. And so on the post, I wrote, I had a great conversation with Milton today. And everyone wrote like, dude, are you joking me? I swear to And they're like, Steven Jackson. So then I Googled him and I found out Steven Jackson. But um, just a beautiful, powerful, beautiful moment. And we've actually stayed in touch ever since. He reached out to me like two weeks ago, asked me to put together a video uh, for him. Me and Andrew and Bethany put together this beautiful video for him that he shared and posted and we're just, I believe in what he's doing. And he's also, he's not George Floyd's brother, but he says they're twins, but they, he's known George Floyd since they, they were both born. Um, and so it's just a beautiful moment, but also shows it's possible. And just, you want to meet someone, if you, you know, want to go out there and get a story, you can do it. Our That's amazing. Until they do. <laughs> it's a lot yeah. of things like that though. Exactly. Well, um, so let's fast forward a couple weeks later and you're like, call me again. Guess what I'm doing? I'm on my way to Seattle. And I was like, what are you doing in Seattle? I'm hoping it's a wedding. No, I'm going to go live and shop for a while. And I was like, um, what? So tell us about your experience. I know this could be another hour long, two hour, whatever conversation, but um, now you're going to the heart of Seattle where something crazy is happening. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that was, that was just awesome. And I came back, uh, I was in Minneapolis for a while. Again, very emotional situations. That really does like weigh on me because I'm very invested in these situations. I'm very mm -hmm. present with them. And so I need time to recharge. And I actually went from Minneapolis. I disappeared to Mexico for a week to like, okay, no one talked to me. And, but I really wasn't able to shut it off because you know, there's this, it was on my every thought. I had this footage, these beautiful stories. And it's really what I live for. It made me feel very alive. So came back. I was like, I still need a few more days. But then I see like Trump is saying, if the mayor doesn't get the protesters out, he's going to help them invade. And so I kind of watched in this ticking time bomb. And it just kept getting like more and more precarious, I guess. And yeah. I was like, I just need to be there. And so I went to CHOP, um, had zero idea. Again, I just don't get, I don't know what's going on in, in these situations. And I like that because that gives me an open palette to not be there trying to find the narrative that I already have in my mind. I'm just there yeah. to learn. And, and people read that quickly and they see that and they trust it. And that's crucial in a situation like CHOP. So CHOP, I get there at nighttime and I hate, I don't like to go in these situations at night because you don't have enough information. Um, these situations are much, they're, they're very different at nighttime. This is already a lawless zone. There's no police. 
There's zero police. Police will not come even if they're called. We knew that going into it. And so I, I, that was like the base of information that I had. So I go into CHOPS like 10.30 at night and there's a little bit of, there's people playing music. There's a, a kind of a crazy situation where a guy got punched in the face. Everyone's kind of yelling and talking over each other. And then the guy gets punched in the face. He kind of gets knocked out. He's on the ground with blood coming out of his mouth. And everyone calls medics, medics. And they all have radios. And then I notice how many people have radios. And so then I'm like, okay. So then all these medics come in. Well, I go to film. Everyone blocks my cameras. One of the guys said, these are all doctors that are all volunteering their time to come in here. But they have to be anonymous because they'd obviously lose their jobs if anyone saw it. So now I'm like, okay, there's doctors in here that are anonymous. So you wouldn't know. Remember, everyone's got masks on, COVID masks, but also hoods and masks and sunglasses. And so everyone's kind of anonymous in the situation. Some people show their faces, but you just, in, this was like a third world situation to me where I go into third world situations spontaneously, but you have to quickly read the landscape because you're not safe until you understand every part of every layer of their situation, especially in poverty, you're gonna have desperation. So you have to be able to read people these situations. So in CHOP, it's like, okay, who are these? And then as I'm there, these guys called the Sentinels come out and they have bulletproof vests on and they block around to give the medics the time to treat this guy. So a, I realized how many layers are going on. This is like their own society and they're trying their best to uh, keep it organized to the sense of like, you know, they had to make their own doctors, they had to make their own police security. Well, then when all these people are doing this, I start to notice multiple people with guns on their side. One guy who ended up being the biggest part of this whole story, he's in a white tank top, black guy, bald head. He's got multiple guns, bear spray in his back pocket, and a steel baton on the side. And so I'm like, okay, there's a lot of different layers. And then I was in that. There's more to that, but to, for the time, I, went, I wanted to walk through and see the rest of CHOP. I got to the other end of CHOP. CHOP was kind of like an eye. Like, this is where I started here. And then you have this long section here, and then you have a long section here. Here is the soccer field. Soccer field is the main occupied space where you have hundreds, maybe thousands of tents. That's where the majority of people were. You had a lot of homelessness, but you had a lot of people that are, you had just a huge hodgepodge of people mm -hmm. in there. But I went to this end just to see the whole thing. And when I get down to this end, I had this guy run past me, and he's in a camo jacket. This picture is on the website. And I notice he's like running really awkwardly. Well, I look over at the guy and he's got a long rifle. It's like the, the length of his body, probably like a three and a half foot, four foot rifle. And he's a white guy, he's running. Well, he's talking to this girl that's in a bulletproof vest and she's got a helmet on and that's just strange. And it's nighttime, now it's like almost midnight. And so I get to the other end and I notice lots of guys that are armed. There's a minivan full of probably six, eight guys, all AR-15s, wow. sitting there with, with, with automatic rifles. So I said, okay, so I'm just watching all these situations. I noticed that it felt like a gang situation because they all seemed similar. And they were very relaxed. They were just sitting there, smoking blunts, drinking, talking, whatever, but they're sitting in this minivan. And there's a few different people and so uh, with AR-15s. Well, I walked to the edge of the soccer field and I'm not dumb enough to take a picture of the situation until I know it well enough. Cause I assume, mm -hmm. I didn't think they'd shoot me, but I figured they'd for sure just take my camera and tell them to get out of there. Well, there's a guy in a bush with an AK-47. Crazy, I was like, AK-47, it felt like I was in another country. And they're wow. all facing this alleyway. 
well, the concrete barriers are here and the alleyway is outside of CHOP. So it's outside of CHOP, very important to, to realize. So they're facing all their guns are going towards this direction and they're stopping cars that are coming up this alleyway. And they're stopping the cars with their guns, they're going up to them, they're making the driver get out, they're looking for gang affiliation tattoos and if they don't have one, they get back in the car and they have to turn and go the opposite direction. And this guy's in the bush facing heavily armed this whole situation. So I'm standing five feet from this guy. Picture of a freaking lifetime, but I just, I didn't, have, I didn't know enough to get the picture. I, I kind of wish I did. And so I'm sitting there for maybe five more minutes. No one's saying a word to me. I'm right there. And uh, I finally have my camera and I pull it up and a guy quickly comes up to me and he says, who are you with? And I said, no one, I'm freelance. And he said, okay. He said, you can be here. No worries. Don't, don't even take pictures or anything though. But you got to know that you're in an active fire situation. I was like, what does that mean? He's like, well, there was a murder last night. We know that there's going to be a murder tonight, a retaliation murder. This is a gang situation. So it's a body for a body. So we know that there's going to be a murder. He was so relaxed telling me about this. We know it's coming. And the spot that you're in is probably going to have some crossfire. So just letting you know where you're sitting. You can be there, but just letting you know. That. I was like, skirt, I'm out. And so <laughs> today I was like, wow. uh, so calmly, so nice, so relaxed. Very nice guy, actually. And so I got out of there. And that was at like probably close to midnight. And 1.30 in the morning, Lil Renz, one of the gang members, 19-year-old kid, was murdered. I was on the streets right here. I was right here. He was murdered on the other side of the street, maybe 30 feet away from me. And he was murdered. And that was the body for the body. So that they got what they wanted and they were peaceful from there on out because they were like, okay, we're even. There's a code of conduct with the, this is the Southside Gangs, Seattle. So there's this code of conduct and they knew that it's peaceful now. So from then on out, the van was there the next day, broad daylight, AR-15s, everyone sitting there, zero police, no one at all. Then this memorial site was set up and they would sit inside the flower with all the flowers and smoke blunts and just sit there and so strange. And so that was when I realized how many layers there were to chop and how, what the impact of a lawless situation truly meant and what I needed to know. So can wow. I say, what, the only other thing I'll say with that is that like, even with all these situations, I couldn't, anytime you pull out a camera, anytime you would be blocked. There would all, they had roaming people that would stand in front of all the cameras for the right reasons. They didn't want just the news to come in because the news is coming in whenever something bad was happening, right? They just want that sensationalized narrative. And so it's fair, but they didn't know who I was. And so Tabitha, the angel that you are, said, help me make some shirts. It said freelance. And that ended up being huge because it said, because what everyone would do is come up to you and say, who are you with? And they, if you're CNN, Fox, anything at all, you're out. You have to leave job, stand outside the, the boundaries, the borders. You can film in, but you can't be here or you're blocked. You have no chance. And so when I realized that, I realized I needed to earn the trust of the main leaders, people inside, mostly with security here, so that when a major moment happened, every camera was blocked, but I needed them to know that I was there for the right reasons and so that I wasn't blocked. And so that took two days. I had a big moment with Rick. The videos up on on the YouTube where he finally I got very lucky another African-American guy was filming Rick's interview and then um, the guy who was interviewing Rick Rick was the leader of security the guy with all the guns and the steel baton uh, the guy that was interviewing Rick got called away 
And Rick was standing there. I was like, no. I was like, keep giving me that. I was like, give me that interview. Keep talking. He's like, what? And I'm like, keep talking. And so he gave me the interview, and we kept going. And that's the interview that's on the YouTube. And then from that, I put the camera away, and we just started talking. And we hit it off right away. And I had this great conversation. At the end of that conversation, he said, here's my card. If anyone doubts you or you know, blocks you or anything, show them this card and tell them that Rick vouches for you. And everyone will trust you in here because of that. But also, everyone in here is going to see you talking with me, standing next to me, and people are going to trust you just because of that itself. But here's my number. If you need protection or if you're having an issue, call me. I will come running. And so Rick gave me his immunity that night. And that's when I called Jack and I said, you have to come immediately because um, everything's going to get huge from here because we're the only people in all of top that had immunity in there to film so whenever these situations would unfold everyone would come out to block the cameras and then they just wouldn't block my camera or jack's camera and so we wow. would just feel we're the only people in the world that were just able to get every situation good and bad but we had to earn that trust and some of that trust took a few days after that to get to from some of the bigger leaders but we got it how, from all. yeah how long were you there like seven days um, wow. And that trust built so much that on our final day, or maybe two days from our final day, we were so embedded as a part of the, the family and the community inside that, you know, and everyone knew us again by our freelancers. They saw it. They were like, hey, where you been? Yeah, you're so awesome. Because <laughs> so by the final day, this is how massive this was that the mayor called and said, okay, I'll, we got to talk because we have to make a decision because we're coming to an end. And so the mayor said, meet in this church. There's this church like three blocks outside of Chop. We're going to meet in the basement, have a secret meeting, a negotiation, and see if we can work this out. Because that morning they had showed up with construction crews to try to get the barriers out and people laid in front of the, the construction crews. Mm. So the mayor knew she was in a terrible situation. Like we, someone's going to have collateral damage. Or So she tried to have this final meeting. Well, the family came to us immediately. And they said, we want you to film this. We want you to be with us in the meeting. And so we had been so embedded in such a short time that there was so much trust that they wanted us to be with them in the meeting to help with the negotiation, to film it, just to kind of capture it also. And that's a whole nother story, how wild that got. So I didn't know about this. Yeah. That is so cool. So when, I mean, what are you going to do with all this footage and all <laughs> of this stuff? Like, what is the plan with this? Because, I mean, I kind of know, but, you know, tell us about what, I mean, like you said, you, this lit you on fire. This is like something you're passionate about. You try to have a little vacation and that's all you could think about is because, you know, it, it was exciting and it also gave you purpose and it was something you really, I don't know. And you got to go behind the scene where no one has been. Yeah. So what's next? Like, what are you going to do with all of these tons of, I mean, I bet you have so much footage you still need to go through, but. We got a lot of footage, but we have an incredible team now. Um, Bethany's helping produce this. Andrew is an incredible editor. Um, Phil's helping uh, kind of with the construction of the, the narrative because to me, this is just so overwhelming. And it's like, I, I went to Wallace this last week to try, okay, let's get the footage like, you know, prioritized. And there's no ego to this, but it's all so good because it's so intimate and powerful and full of emotion. It's all so good. So it's like, we got to condense this to, we're going to try a 22 minute documentary impossible there's no way and so it's yeah. like i need help with kind of constructing that together so now we got this wonderful team um to where like i hope you're still a part of that too and we're i'm on the group text <laughs> I, oh yes we need you 
Um, and then a really cool thing happened. I think it was last week. Um, I got a call from Joe Berlinger, who is a multi-academy award nominated, uh, multi-Emmy winning documentary director. And he's like, I want to be a part of this. I want to help. And so we got Joe and his team that now we're doing sizzle reels to kind of show them what we have and then try to put that together. But we're going to do a short documentary, which is what I want to do, focus on the humanitarian side. But then they would like to also do a longer 90-minute documentary and probably go back. They want me to go back and interview these people after the fact and kind of get more of their stories with it and then put it all together. All I care about is not politicizing the most political thing possible. I don't know how to do that yet, but there's so much humanity in the footage that I captured and the stories are so vivid and unbelievably just beautiful and deep that I want to focus in... And I don't know what the idea, the narrative is yet, but essentially on, here's all these people that believe in something so much so that they would go into a chaotic, dangerous situation, live their lives in there just to continue using their voice in unity together to try to make progress on a, in a very impossible situation with a small group versus what we know, how strong the police force is. So, wow. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I'm so excited. I mean, whenever time you guys post a new video, I get super excited. And some of it's yeah. very emotional. Um, what you have brought out of people, which I think is so cool is that you're able to just talk to these and you're like, no, keep going. Tell me more. You ask the right questions and you pull something magical. I mean, some of the interviews have gotten intense or, you know, some of the footage, which is so exciting. So, you know, as a, you know, you're a local, you're a Coeur d'Alene local. Um, how can we support you through all of this? And what can we do as a community to show you support or help? Oh, man. You know, what I need the most right now is balance and grounding. Um, this is an extremely emotionally intense project for me because I'm very personally attached to it and close to it. So uh, the only thing, if you've seen me around town, understand if, you know, I'm struggling with, maintaining all the personal relationships that mean everything to me. Everyone in this town knows that I love them to death, hopefully, but it's hard to do that and like dedicate your time to an emotionally, extremely emotionally intense project. And I'm in the middle of wedding season. I'm a wedding photographer. Which is That's that too. <laughs> ah, extremely emotionally intense too. And the weddings get my priority because that's so important to me, obviously, but it's like, I'm trying my best. I'm trying so hard to have balance. I'm missing phone calls. I'm missing texts. I'm, I'm, it's not intentional. You know, the, maybe the problem I'm doing now is trying to say, okay, maybe I'll have some uh, mental clarity to return that call the next day and I don't get it. So then those calls just disappear. So um, hoping that people understand how much I love them and how much I look forward to life stabilizing a little bit, but it probably won't be for a little bit of time, but this is what I've given my whole life to, this dream and this idea. Um, and I'm very fortunate with what I have, and I feel kind of a calling to do this justice, but I'm struggling with that personal side with that, and I ask everyone just to to understand that I love them, and not, none of it's personal, and if you see me around town, buy me a beer, and let me sit in a corner and just stare at the wall for a little bit. <laughs> yes, that's what my introverted friend needs, is just some, like, <laughs> peace. Like, I want you there, and I love you, and I want to hug. I just might not have the mental space for as deep of a conversation as I'd like to have. And I miss that, yeah. but just for the moment. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's exciting. And, you know, go follow on all social media. And it does help um, coming from someone that knows a little bit about social media is that we share, we like, and we constantly showing you support on that side too, because and then the more likes and shares, more people see what you're doing um, so that you can really get the story out to the right people and um, really showcase what's going on. Yeah. And I really have no, I, I think the world needs to see what I'm putting out there, not mm -hmm. for me, but because what I'm putting out there, we are such a divided society feels like right now. We're so divided. Everything you're going to see from what I'm putting out there, it's not going to divide you. I don't care what you believe. You're going to look at it and you're going to be like, that is passion. That is life. That is some, I don't even know exactly what he believes in on that side, but that is something that unites us as far as like, that is something I think we all need to see, the humanitarian side of, of these things. Politi less, take away the political division as much as possible. It might be impossible at some points, um, but just to kind of see a different narrative and uh, the beauty of the situations I've been fortunate enough to be in. Really. Yeah. Well, thank you so very much for giving me your time. And uh, you know you got our support and anything we can do. Yeah. And, uh, what's the thing? Can we say, so connecting to happiness is the Instagram. And then hellofromastranger.com is the website. And then I don't know. You're better at this stuff than me. So. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, <laughs> I'll link it all in there. So if you're listening and want to follow him, please do go to my social media and it's all connected there. So you can go follow him, share his stuff, go please to his YouTube and see the videos. They're the most powerful videos you'll see um, with everything that's going on. Thank you so much, Dan, for that. Thank you for this time. Thanks for thinking of me. Of course. You're the best. Thanks for listening to Keeping Tabs. I'm Tabitha Crock, and if you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe to my YouTube, iTunes, or Spotify to keep up to date on every Monday and Friday. Monday, we will talk to a different community member here in North Idaho, and then we'll end the weeks with the things that I'm passionate about, traveling, outdoors, adventures, the van life, sports, and of course, some current events. So thank you so much again, and we'll see you next time.